The Women in Media podcast is proudly sponsored by Organic Traditions for spring 2024. Stay tuned for a special deal during this episode. I'm Sarah Burke, and this is the Women in Media podcast. My guest today is an award-winning musician who communicates her art through music and movement, pictures and poetry. It's her storytelling that ties it all together. I think it's my responsibility to talk about this because I'm a human being. This is everybody's problem. These are mass graves of children. This is genocide. This is not something that is an indigenous person's problem or responsibility to solve. Like that idea in itself is like, switch that immediately. If somebody can't see a mass grave of children and not need to know what their race is or their culture is, but just see that they're children, that's it. That's where it ends. My guest today is Iskwe, who you may know best for her music. Welcome to the Women in Media podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's not just about music for you. Like you are always creating art in some way, shape or form. You're always using your voice. Have you always been in the spotlight? I think my mom would say yes. (laughs) Were you the kid in school who was like always talking? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And I, when I was, when I was young, back in the day when camcorders were like those big things that you had to like prop up on your shoulder. And these were like the, you know, the at home versions. My grandma had one and there's tapes. There may or may not be tapes of me when I'm like five years old interviewing myself in the bathroom mirror. <laughs> I love that. Now was the dream, was the dream music or was it something else? The dream initially was dance. I always loved music and I did want to be on stage, but for some reason, well, not for some reason. I just didn't have anybody to look up to in music that I was like, okay, they came from a similar place. So if they can do it, I can do it. Whereas Mm -hmm. growing up in Winnipeg, we had the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. So it was like a very, you know, there was a, a place that you could go and you could train and then you could progress and, you know, be on stages and things like that. So that was my first dream. Ballet was the beginning for me too. (laughs) Funny enough. Yeah. I used to take ballet and jazz and do all the competitive dancing. So funny. It was, it was like, I, I I danced like five, six days a week. I I imagine that your mom also hated doing your hair in a perfect bun. Oh, she didn't do it. I did it. (laughs) Oh, good. My mom and I had so many fights about that. Oh my God. (laughs) So from dancing, how did you make your way into music? When, when was that moment where you realized that you might also be able to do that? Well, I, I mean, as a kid, I did sing. So I sang for the Winnipeg Girls Choir for a few years. I sang on a children's artist album, a Francophone album when I was in elementary school. And, and then I became a teenager. And for me, like my teenage years were quite moody. And so I dropped, right? Like I really, I really went, went for it. And I stopped singing for people and I became very internal with it. So I would only sing when I was by myself and I, I continued to sing, but I would only do it when I was by myself. And, and that's how it was for years and years and years to the point that finally Canadian Idol came to Canada for the very first time. And I was working for a financial company in their call center. And my friend who sat in the cubicle beside me was like, oh, I'm gonna go audition for Canadian Idol. And I'm like, huh, I wanna audition for Canadian Idol. And so I went home and my partner at the time who I had been living with 
for two years at this point. Uh, I was like, I want to audition for Canadian Idol. And he was like, do you know how to sing? Because <laughs> I had never sung for him. <laughs> As in your partner had to ask you that. Yeah, my partner, who I had been living with for two years. And so I was like, well, I think so, you know. So in Winnipeg, they're beautiful character apartments, which means very, very old, but still very lovely. And they're very long. So I had him stand in one part of the apartment and I stood at the opposite end and I belted out Alana Miles black velvet. That's amazing. <laughs> and he came in when I was done. He's like, all right, well, if this is what you want to do, then let's do it. And he was very business minded. So he's like, you have to sign up for some uh, voice lessons, do a couple of recitals just to get, you know, the feel of performing in front of people again, because you can't audition from another room. And, you know, and then, and then I did, I went to the audition. I fully, I made it through a couple of rounds. I got to the TV round, like the, you know, where you go, all the judges are sitting there staring at you so disinterested <laughs> and you, you sing. And there was just like so many cameras and so many lights. And they had kept us in this really cold holding pen. It was quite torturous actually. Mm. And I picked a Whitney Houston tune and I fully, fully bombed. And no. I saw them kind of like, you know, make faces when I, my voice cracked and I, I finished the song. And then when I was done, this, done the song, I gave them a nice little nod and I left the room. <laughs> and then that was it for the rest of my life. I've never stopped singing. Right. And how did that turn into this wonderful solo career that you have? Well, it took 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so it took a lot of time and a lot of effort and energy and hard work and, you know, tears and sweat. And I haven't bled for it, so that's good. But, you know, it's, yeah, it's a journey. It's not, um, it's nothing that I experienced quickly. That's pretty mm -hmm. Is music right now the central part of your career, would you say? Yes. I or would your say favorite part? I would say a hesitant yes. And I, I say hesitant only because I think or I feel that my art is rooted in music, but it's really rooted in, but it's also rooted in an amalgamation of different art mediums. So when I put on performances, or even when I'm writing songs, I really pull from visual elements, um, whether they are for still image, moving image, dance, these sorts of things, costuming. Like I'm really considering all of these pieces even as I'm writing the tunes. So for me, it's like once a song is written and it's going onto the album, I already know what the visual is gonna be for it. I already know that narrative. So it all kind of comes, like it's all one big piece. Do you feel like your career began from the songs that you were writing in music or do you think that the visual elements led to the songs well i would say it was the music because initially so when i first got to the states i i had been in you know obviously i'm from canada i'd gone from winnipeg to toronto i lived in toronto for about a year and a half and then i pieced and went to new york and la for about six years ish and when i was there i worked on my first album. So I released the first album, like, you know, within a few months of moving back to Canada, but it was all very much um, written while I was in the US. Mm -hmm. And so the influences at that time, like I was young, when I first got there, I was 
25, I think. And I was by myself. I didn't know anybody. I was extremely vulnerable to external influences and, and thoughts and opinions and so on. So a lot of what I did was, and that album is a, a very strong reflection of that, of other people's ideas of what I should do. Mm. And I, I decided at the end of the day to continue with it because I was like, you know what, this is, because by the end of the album, there was more of me starting to come forward with it. But I had been pushing it for so long with, you know, other people's, you should be an R&B singer, you should sing neo soul, you should do this, you should trying to fit you into boxes. Yeah, fit me into boxes. And I was like, Okay, I don't, you know, like, what do I know? So, so it did start off like my career was quite active um, in that world. And then when I came back to Canada, and I found um, the ability to pull from the, the visual art and the dance and movement again, then it continued on in a different channel. But so there, it was almost like there were two stages to the career for me. Like, but the first one, the one that really put me in, in place was not um, as visually related. How much of your indigenous heritage was present in the early days of your music? I am indigenous. So it's always going to be there. It's kind of like if you are a female and making music, how much of being a female is going to be a part of your music? Well, you know, that would be sort of the, you know, the simplest, the simplistic answer. But if we're talking about specific references, whether it is, you know, related to conversation or visible representation in terms of like, art and so forth, then when I first first started, no, those conversations weren't a part of what I was doing. Like mm -hmm. I said, I was in the US and I was um, being very much directed by people that I was working with. And it wasn't, it wasn't there for me at that time, I guess. I was mm -hmm. young, I was like, you know, trying to figure things out. Lyrically, is there a, a song you remember writing early on in your career or when you first got back to Canada where you really remember confronting any of your indigenous heritage through song? Absolutely. I have a song called Will I See? And this was the song that really launched my um, dedication to conversation around societal issues impacting indigenous communities. And this song was written in response to um, the murder of Tina Fontaine, who was a young, young woman, a young indigenous woman in Winnipeg. And this story really, you know, for lack of better words, broke my heart and my spirit. And it wasn't because she was the first, it's definitely not because she was the last and definitely because she wasn't the first. Um, however, there was, it was almost like the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, around that time, my sister was either pregnant or like my niece was just born or so something like this. Like I, I, my dates are kind of, have kind of escaped me, but it was, you know, it was a really uh, like, it just took me in a different way. And I remember in that moment, it was like, you know, when your eyes open to something, you can't close them again. Yes. And it's not as though my eyes had been closed to what we were experiencing, 
but like I said, it was that straw that broke the camel's back. So that's, that's what I'm referencing when I say that my eyes opened in a new way. And yeah, it, it absolutely changed my path because I, I couldn't imagine spending my energy talking about anything else anymore. It just was all, all of my heart went to supporting my community. Mm-hmm. All of my love went to supporting my community, my family, my my loved ones, right? Like this isn't, um, these are these are stories that are, they're not other people's stories for us. These are our stories. These are, you know, these are the things that our loved ones are going through. Tell me a little bit about your Indigenous background. Well, I am Korean Métis and my family, so we are um, Métis of the Red River Valley, which is the birthplace of the Métis people. And my family has been there since the dawn of time. <laughs> my mom's family, anyway. I don't, I don't know too much about my biological dad's family, but so I grew up with my mom and her culture and her family, and well, and then my adopted dad's family. Being from Winnipeg, it's, it's, for me, it's funny whenever I encounter people who have either been to Winnipeg or are from Winnipeg. If it's, if it's a, I've been to Winnipeg it's a very different conversation. If it's an I'm from Winnipeg, people are either like, they love it till the death, or they're like, I got out as fast as I could. And for me, I'm in the love it till to the death category. Like I, I don't know if it's something where it's, it's that muscle memory, that DNA memory, but it's home. My family is all still there. My, you know, my friends are all still there. Every time I'm there, I go back for big chunks of time. Every time I'm there, it's like, very different sensation than anywhere I've been. I've traveled lots. And I think a very large part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, like I said, that's where my, my DNA comes from. And growing up in the community back home was, was beautiful and difficult and wonderful and all of these things, like, like any family, right? Every family has all of those bits and pieces that, that, um, teach you how to love, teach you how to protect yourself, teach you how to take care of yourself, t- teach you how to take care of others. Like I-, I pulled all of those beautiful pieces from, you know, being who I am and where I'm from. How about siblings? Ah, I have one sister and she is six years younger than I am. She has just had her third child. So I am the proud auntie of three babies and I love them all very, very much. Nice. And she's still in Winnipeg as well. She's a, she's a till death do us part kind. Did you have any experiences growing up um, in Winnipeg where school was tough because of your indigenous background or for the most part, did you have a relatively normal upbringing? Um. Yeah, I mean, it was relatively normal. Like I grew up in a neighborhood that was pretty diverse. So Mm -hmm. there were such, there was such a range of kids that when I was in elementary school, it was very, yeah, it was quite diverse. And, and so I didn't really notice, you know, I'm also, you know, like in fairness, I am very white passing. So it's like my experiences as an indigenous person in Winnipeg were dramatically different than a lot of my family members right mm-hmm. um but yeah like in in junior high and high school it was substantially different though where i found that the conversations 
you know, I found it hard having like being friends with a lot of people because by the time I got to high school, it was extremely racist. And, you know, there were so many people who, because that, that when, you know, we all come from different places when it's high school, you didn't, you don't all come from the same neighborhood. Right. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I got there, there were so many people that were new that didn't know what my background was and assumed I was white. So assumed that I thought like them and, you know, would say really horrible things. And I would have to like pop up from the sidelines and be like, bing, hi guys. Uh, just so you know, you are actually talking about my family when you're saying these terrible, terrible things. And, you know, so it was quite alienating a lot of the time, but for a very different reason than somebody who is not white passing, but indigenous, because I can walk through those rooms and if nobody knows me, they're not gonna know what my background is. But then I'm also like, you know, for me, I was constantly on defense mode because I was constantly like, no, don't say that. That's shitty. Let me tell you why. This is where you're wrong. This is how you're racist. And and I was doing that from, you know, like 15 on, 14 on. It's quite the responsibility at that age. And I, you know, I think it's about what people are, what allies are are starting to do now in, you know, calling out behavior like that and correcting people in the way that ways that they speak um mm. at 15 that's like a very different thing to take on it was actually it was in grade eight when i first started remember or when i remember it first starting it was then it was that year at first it was confusing because you're just like what are you talking about right because like i said i grew up with diversity i grew up downtown winnipeg right i grew up with all kinds of different kids and my parents did a very good job at not, you know, like I didn't see it as any difference. I didn't see it as anything, you know, like to me, that was what was normal. You're taught that kind of ignorance. You don't, you don't start off that way. Kids, kids don't look at their friend and are like, my friend is a different skin color. They suck. You mm -hmm. know, like they might notice that they look different, but it's not going to be a better or worse thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. We teach them that. So yeah, like it was, yeah, it came when it came and then it just, it just became the, the normal for me, mm -hmm. you know, where I did, I did, you know, like have those conversations all the time. <laughs> yeah. I've asked many people over the last few weeks, like in interviews, whether it be for this podcast or, or just for work, um, there's lots of conversations right now where people are talking about if they learned about residential schools mm -hmm. when they were growing up. Mm -hmm. And I remember learning about that stuff in school. And we always had like dedicated units to that, but I've been really surprised to find that a lot of people never even learned about it. Um, what was that situation in Winnipeg? And I'm asking just out of genuine curiosity. Yeah. I don't remember ever learning. I only remember knowing about it because of my family. Through your family, not through the education system. Yeah. I don't recall learning about it in school. I, re I remember learning about like the Buffalo jump and pemmican and, <laughs> you know, um, missionaries and, black robe like we were shown that film in school like it was always the jesuits like that was the era that we got we got first contact mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right that's what we were taught about and yeah like i remember i remember being in grade nine and i had a, a teacher at my high school who was also indigenous and he took us to a pipe ceremony and i was just like right on man like he, you know, it, it was, it was awesome. And I, I was so stoked. My mom was so pumped. And then I remember seeing some of the kids 
And they were just being like such assholes about it, you know? And I'm just like, but my teacher was so cool. Like he was just, I don't know. I really admired this man. He was very, um, like, he didn't seem phased, but at the same time, he gave no space for the ones that were being jerks because we got, we went to the ceremony um, somewhere else, right? So when we got there, the ones that were, you know, quickly removed anybody that was acting up, but he didn't do it. Like he had no pain on his face that I could see. Right. And, and he and I, like, he knew I was indigenous as well. So it was like, it was really nice to see that as a role model for me in how to um, respond when people are, are acting that way. Right. Because mm. I don't know what his thoughts were on the inside. I don't know what his heart felt on the inside, but what he showed me was a, an understanding or a patience for somebody else's ignorance. That doesn't mean you accept it and ignore it, but it just means that you don't let it in. You don't make it about you. You don't make it about you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And whether or not that's what he was doing, I don't know, but that's what I took from it. Right. Like when I watched him respond, Mm -hmm. he was just so calm and he was, really kind and yeah. Is there anyone specific who made you want to get into music, indigenous or otherwise? Shoot, yeah. I mean, there there are artists that I absolutely admire um, who are, you know, like global phenomenons. Um, And, you know, so artists like Erica Badu, Kate Bush, David Bowie, Bjork, like these are artists that I really admire. I admire their courage and their freedom in their art and, you know, their ability to be themselves and speak their minds and, you know, do all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, more localized, I, you know, I, it was, it came much later on where I started to realize like, wow, people, people have made careers and careers don't necessarily mean fame and stardom and millions and millions of dollars. And those, you know, like those were the artists like Kenny Starr that were extremely influential for me because I was like, oh man, like she's had a incredible career and is still like just a very normal person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that in the best way, right? Like she's not normal, but she's like, you know, her life is chill is what mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah, she can still have like a good quality of life, like not living on a tour bus or... Exactly. Who who has like mentored you uh, in terms of your career as an artist? Oh gosh, I've had so many. Well, Kinney was a big mentor for me. Absolutely. Yes. We've had, yeah. She's also a dear friend, but it, it did begin in the mentorship role, which was which was awesome and awesome that she's so humble to start off in that position and then befriend, you know, someone, someone in the likes of me, but yeah, so she was a a huge mentor for me. I, you know, somebody who's done a lot for me and for indigenous music in general is Alan Gray eyes in Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. He's, um, he's such a champion for our people and our voices and our music. And I think that I I personally don't feel that there's any indigenous musician in Canada that couldn't um, associate mass progress in their careers because of that man. He is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. In this day and age, what does it take for you to feel empowered as a musician, but also as a woman in the spotlight? I've learned to 
number one, turn off social media. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is, I was just like, that is not the place for me anymore. And that was probably the biggest place of empowerment for me was just that disconnecting. And, and it's kind of like, you know, when you're in an abusive relationship and you finally get out of it and you're like, it's really, really, really hard. And you go through this period of total devastation. And then you come out the other side and you're like, oh, oh, I can breathe. And I'm not afraid to breathe. This is an assumption I'm making, but it sounds like uh, part of that empowerment comes from not worrying about what others think. Exactly. Yeah. And I haven't been one to worry about what others think in my lifetime, right? Like I've always been the one that will put myself first in terms of, you know, be the one to stand up for somebody else and be the one to take the hit first. I've been a little bit almost like blind to that, you know, where, where I will put myself in that position because I feel very passionate about the things that I'm passionate about. And, but then it was like, when it came to this, it just, it, it, and, and that, you know, the fear that develops, I'm like, this isn't me. Why am I so worried about this? This is not, this is not me because I, you know, the things that I, how I conduct myself in my life is quite thought out. You know, I'm an Aquarius. For those of you who don't know Zodiac signs, maybe you don't care. Maybe you're really into it. I don't know. I'm into it. Aquarians are quite introspective. We spend a lot of time thinking about things and thinking about, you know, like our interactions. And then, you know, like when we're done with something, we go home and we think about it. Like we're just very, very much in our heads and in our heads in the clouds. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's for me, it was like, where, how did this happen? How did I become this person that was like almost too, too invested in what somebody else was going to think about me? And I'm like, nope. Not for me. Okay. What are, what are the other tools that go along with that for empowerment? Age, I think is, is one I've been, I recently turned 40. And when I was in Los Angeles, I can't tell you how many times people told me to lie about my age, pretend I was younger, never, never admit blah, 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 you know, and all of those pieces. And I was just like, what? Like, no, thank you. Um, so for me, age and, and ex, you know, like accepting age as it comes is very empowering. It's challenging, <laughs> especially when you're like, oh gosh, where did all of these gray hairs come from? Or where did these wrinkles come from or whatever, right? Like, and I don't, you know, I don't consider myself old, but just the, the fact that as you grow, you age, you change, you learn, you develop, you, all of those things. To me, it was like, all of it is beautiful and I can't, I can't only get wiser. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's other parts of aging as well. And so for me, accepting that and the comfort that I found in that was a very empowering position to take in my being and then in my art. Mm -hmm. I definitely feel far more liberated in my art this year than I have in any other year of my life. And I, you know, all I can attribute it to is that acceptance of like, I hit this milestone and, and I'm cool with it. Mm -hmm. And that You're completely just, comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. And then from there, it's like, eh, you know, and now I don't, you know, like, and people can say what they want to say and like, whatever. And mm -hmm. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to go forward in my life, knowing that my heart is always in a good place and that I'm always concerned and thinking, but I also have to be true to myself. Mm -hmm. just like everybody should. 
It's Sarah Burke here, the host of the Women in Media podcast and the founder of the Women in Media Network. Yep, now there's an entire network. I've been working really hard to get things off the ground. And what would I do without coffee? I can barely function without it. But I feel much better about putting a coffee that's full of superfoods in my body. I've been loving the Focus Fuel Instant Mushroom Coffee from Organic Traditions. And of course, all the ingredients are organic. It's packed with lion's mane mushroom to support memory, focus, and cognitive function, adaptogens to nourish your brain, and MCT powder to boost your energy and improve mental clarity. And before you make that face, no, it doesn't taste like mushrooms. It tastes like coffee. Actually better than most. There are hints of cinnamon and vanilla, and it is absolutely delicious. Did I mention it also just won Best New Mushroom Enhanced Beverage in a 2024 Brand Spark survey? Want to try the Focus Fuel Mushroom Coffee yourself? Head to OrganicTraditions.com and use the promo code WOMENINMEDIA20 for 20% off at checkout. And by the way, that applies for the entire site, not just the coffee. You're welcome. Just add water and get at it. Has there been a moment where you have had to push back or fight for your identity in artistic direction? What's a moment that you really persevered through that and came out in a place where you were so proud of yourself? With my song Night Danger, I I feel this was a song that I wrote. I had this is one where I had a total vision for the tune. To date, it's a song that I'm most proud of because it is such a reflection of me. And I had to fight for that song. I had to fight for that song like so in every single way. You know, I worked with a team and it was like all dudes and so many times people wanted to change it and send it in a different direction or take credit for things they didn't do. But then also I had to really fight for it because it's a song where I say the F-bomb 500 times in it. And so it was like, well, this will never make it on the radio and this will never blah, 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 make it to playlists and da, 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 da. And I'm like, I don't care. And yeah, so I really, I really had to fight for that one. And, you know, I, I feel so good about it because every time I hear it back, I'm like, man, that's a good song. How comfortable has it been for you to uh, use, you know, your, your platforms to speak about those indigenous conversations to speak about, you know, I know that you're participating in some pride uh, events (laughs) and I would love to hear a little more about that, but how easy is it for you to speak like as a two spirited person? very easy yeah it's for me it's um I was lucky enough to grow in a household that was very much in support of my being you know they my family was I'm a you know I come from a family of artists and you know um strong women and and my grandfather was a huge influence in my life and they were all very encouraging of me being me um you know so even though they'll tease me about you know my mom has this thing like if i didn't get my way or the the house that they my parents live in is a bungalow and the main floor it's like the kitchens in the back and the living rooms in the front and there's two hallways it's kind of like a a track a race track <laughs> and okay. so my mom loves to tell this story about how um if i you know if i wanted something and they said no i would like go and do laps and like plan my attack to come back and reconvince them and if they'd say no can i go and do another lap they thought it was hilarious but it also was a, it's a big part of my spirit now right like that developing that ability to plan out my 
what I had to say, right? Cause I wasn't, I didn't go in and just like whine. I would go in and, you know, like, and be like, okay, here, here are the reasons why I think you should change your mind. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so because they were so gentle with me in that, I think that really nurtured my ability to be true to who I am and speak my mind about the things that I speak about. I also grew up in a family that, you know, when I came out to my mom, um, she was, she was like, cause I was like, nervous about it right so when I told her I was just like oh yeah like I've got something to say and uh, I feel kind of nervous she's like what is it and then I told her and she's like that's it (laughs) I'm like what and she's like come on and she really gave me a good lesson because I was being I was so caught up in myself and maybe I had heard other people's stories that I forgot how much work other family members of mine had done in our family to create a space of safety for other types of people, right? Like I've got cousins who are queer, I've got cousins who are trans, I've got cousins who are every shade of the rainbow. And so I went into it being like, and my mom's like, get over yourself. They already did all of the work for this family, right? So it was was a good humbling lesson for me. And, And, you know, so I think that was what I also brought forward is that, you know, my family, my, I have family members who did so much of that work so that I didn't have to. So for me, it's like, it's important to speak about things because, you know, we place ourselves, we have this teaching of seven generations where you are right in the middle of the generations before you and the generations that come after you. And you are a result of them and you will be a part of the future, right? And and that was what I had thought of when I was in that moment. It's like, of course, right? Like I have all of these generations of family members who have done all of this work, both when it comes to culture, when it comes to sexuality, gender, um, gender fluidity, all of these, mm-hmm. all of these sections of being that for me, it was like, now it's my job to, I don't have to fight that in my family, right? That's not my job. My job is to now be strong and present these conversations out in the world as a pillar of strength in it, knowing that my family has my back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So a genuine question, because I don't know any better. Um, mm-hmm. What's the two-spirited story in Indigenous teachings? And is it the same across the board, or is it different in certain communities? It's going to be different in, in different communities. I know that the term was coined in Winnipeg at a conference in 1990-something. Okay. Let me actually just Google that because it's so interesting that it was coined at a conference. Mm-hmm. That's not what I was expecting. Held in Winnipeg in 1990. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was so it was... to Elder Myra Laramie, who proposed its use during the third annual intertribal Native American First Nations Gay and Lesbian American Conference held in Winnipeg 1990. The term is a translation of the Anishinaabemowin term, which I can't say, I don't speak this language, but which means two spirits. When do you remember using that term, like two-spirited, for the first time? Ooh, like outwardly? Yeah. Um, when I was in my first, like, formal relationship with a other, with another two-spirit person. It was, uh, like, I had, I had been in, I had had romances with women. You know, funny for me, here's my, here's my story on this. Um, I also did not... Like it took me a long time to understand myself in that because again, I didn't have any references to people that were like me growing up. The the women who were in relationships with women were all very 
physically identifiable in a way that I didn't identify with. And so for me, it was like, I don't get this. This is, this isn't, you know, like if that's a lesbian, quote unquote, that's not what I see in myself. I don't, I don't relate. Right. Mm -hmm. And, And so it wasn't until I moved to Los Angeles that I was like, oh, like women can be all kinds of different types of women and still be interested in women, or they can be, you know, and and that's actually when I started to understand and learn about the term two spirit as well, right? Like, so, you know, if it came into fruition in the, in 1990, like became kind of stamped as a, as a marker, um, you know, I was nine, <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, for me, it came later on in life. Like I just, and then in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, oh, yes, like this friend of mine that I had at such and such age, I was like, oh, no, I actually had like a massive crush on that person. But I didn't understand what it was. So I, you know, like I nothing happened because I just, you know, like you're a kid and you don't know or whatever. That was that was my journey in it. Mm-hmm. OK, so this is a, like a two part question. All right. Bring it. You're just getting all the goods on me today, Sarah. <laughs> Holy. It's not my fault. You're one of the most interesting people. Just getting all loose-lipped on my water. That's all. That's all you. <laughs> what has been one of your proudest moments in regards to being two spirited? Whether it was someone who heard some of your music and really identified with like lyrical content, or uh, something where you've publicly said something that someone's really identified with. Hmm. Um. Because there's a there's a lot of difficult stories about this type of stuff. And I, I want to make sure we talk about like those moments we can celebrate too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, oddly enough, my proudest moment was not my own. It was my younger cousin. And we were having a conversation one day and I had been, I was already in a, a relationship with a two-spirited person and I, you know, was very comfortable like there was, you know, I had no uh, hesitation. There was, like I said, my when my, when I had that conversation with my mom, it really just launched me into this headspace of like, get over yourself. This isn't, mm-hmm. you know, like that's not your journey or your fight. Um, and so I remember having a conversation with my younger cousin who really just, cause I was just like, you know, I, I didn't really know how to identify these terms. This term doesn't fit. That term doesn't fit. Like, because there's always sort of, bits and pieces of it that I don't fully understand or don't fully relate to myself. And my cousin was like, well, I just love who I love. Yeah. And I went, of course, you know? And so for me, that was actually the most proud moment that I felt and it wasn't mine. It was my cousin sharing that sentiment and me going like, here, of course, and learning it from the younger ones, right? Like the, the, the younger, the younger generations always have such vast amounts of knowledge and you're just like, where does that come from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like, uh, knowing, knowing that the younger cousin didn't have those same reservations that you did when you were first telling your mom. Not at all. That's beautiful. Not at all. Yeah. And, and yeah. So for me, that was it. I don't know that, you know, like I haven't, I haven't really written too much about, sexuality so Mm -hmm. for me that hasn't been a part of the conversations that I have in my music in general and any time there's been conversation about sentiment it usually is you know like I have a song on on my last album about a 
very dear friend of mine who passed away from cancer. So it's like, you know, funny enough, in terms of this conversation, this album that I'm recording right now is very much the polar opposite. It is all about my personal experiences, my personal loves, my personal lusts, like all of that kind of stuff. So it is deeply, deeply personal and private, except for I'm putting it into an album that I will release to the world. <laughs> but up until now, the conversations have generally been quite community focused, right? Mm -hmm. And, or, and, or focused on, you know, something that is um, a little easier for me to, to step back from, right? Like, it's always my heart in it. But when there's so many voices a part of the song, it's easier to, to hug everybody in it and be like, this is our story. This is us. Mm -hmm. I'm sharing, a, you know, like my interpretation of our story or, yeah. Okay, now talk to me about one of your proudest songs in terms of showcasing your Indigenous identity. So I wrote a song called Nobody Knows. And this song was, again, in response to missing and murdered Indigenous women on a big scale. So while Will I See was about that specific finding and that specific experience of, um, you know, when, when they found Tina and Winnipeg came together and, it, you know, it was very much my interpretation of her speaking back to us, right? Mm -hmm. Something in that kind of space. Nobody Knows was a song that I wrote about it was very angry and afraid. You know, I was afraid for my niece. I was afraid for my family members, my loved ones, my friends, my community members, and I was angry. And I wrote that song from that place for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. For all of us, because we've all had that conversations with our mothers or our aunties of how to protect ourselves, how to walk differently across the street, how to know what's around us, you know, like when you walk into a room, I know where it's been ingrained into me. I know, like, this is going to be really dark, but like when as a kid or as a teenager, I knew where, you know, a beer bottle was at a party in case I needed it, right? Mm -hmm. Like to, to at all times, like things like that. You just, you're taught to know this and it's, it's dark and it's heavy, but this is our truth, right? And so that song was very cathartic to sing because I was able to package all of that rage into one piece and scream it on stage. And I remember being at a festival, it was a pride festival, ironically enough, in New Westminster, BC, just outside of Vancouver, or like a, a, a suburb of Vancouver. And there was this beautiful, strong Indigenous woman standing at the front of the stage. I'd never performed there before. So I was brand new, had like very small audience because I was new to the area. I was new to the scene or newish to the scene, that kind of thing. But she came and stood directly in front of the stage when I played that song and sang with me every single word. And I was just like, fuck yeah. And that was just, you know, like, I, and by the end of it, I was crying because it was crying from like that's, you know, not like sobbing, but like that, that place of like, ugh, why do we have to scream this mm -hmm. exhaustion, right? Just like, like, this is for us. This is for our loved ones. And we're 
we don't want to do that. We don't, I don't want to have to be on stage screaming about this stuff. I don't want to have to be having these conversations all the time. Nobody does. Mm -hmm. I imagine that the last few weeks has been exhausting for you too. Uh, You know, I think it was, uh, was Donna Mero, that conversation that we had. I think, I think I saw that you joined us for that conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he said to me when we talked earlier that week, we were on the phone and uh, he said, I keep getting these calls. Like, and it, it's hard not to feel like I'm being reached out to as like a token indigenous person, mm-hmm. even though I really want to help have the space to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, did you find any of that over the last few weeks? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I just didn't respond to most of them. No, now's not the time. <laughs> yeah. And for, for the most part, you know, these are things that you, you've been thinking about your whole life, right? Well, exactly. And, and to me, it's like, you know, and this is the thing, it's like, I had an interview earlier where I was talking about albums, you know, music projects. And then of course the conversation ends up going there. And, and, and the, you know, the question of whether I felt it was my responsibility as an indigenous person and an artist to talk about it. And I'm like, no, I think it's my responsibility to talk about this because I'm a human being, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is everybody's problem. These are mass graves of children. This is genocide. This is not something that is an indigenous person's problem or mm-hmm. responsibility to solve. Like that idea in itself is like, switch that immediately. Mm-hmm. If you can't, if somebody can't, can't see a mass grave of children and not need to know what their race is or their culture is, but just see that they're children, Mm-hmm. that's the first, that's it that's where it ends right so simply put but you're bang on yeah so that's yeah that's mm-hmm. how it is for me if you're in control of the conversation yourself and it's not dependent on anyone else or any interview mm-hmm. um what are the ways that you want to uplift the indigenous community with your art i just you know i strive to i strive to be a good person every day. I strive to be better than I was yesterday every day. I strive to walk with love and talk with love, receive with love, give with love, um, and to be true to my art and to show others that those things are possible, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We all have, we're not all the same. Like, you know, people who are indigenous are not all the same. We all have very different stories and I find it can be tiring and difficult to be for the assumption to constantly be made that we all just, you know, like have this blanket understanding of each other, but we don't, mm-hmm. right? We're all very diverse. We have different languages. We have different cultures. We have different histories and stories. And, you know, like some, some families went to residential schools, some did not. Some families were torn apart during the 60s scoop some were not some are you know like we have all of these different different narratives right and so i just for me it's what i hope is that i can just be myself and i can share my truth and i can be comfortable to share my truth and show people that that's okay Mm -hmm. it's hard but it's okay so because you also play on the other side of the microphone where you're the host, um, <laughs> yeah, this, this is very intriguing to me, you know, because you're on both sides of it. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember you were doing, I think it was like live in your living room or, or something like that on Instagram. And 
guess we're from over here. Guess we're from over here. And you know, it, I love that because it was unpredictable. You've also got this, um, series with Ben Rayner, who I love by the way, yeah. um, the Chesterfield, yeah. like when you turn the mic around and it's about asking someone else questions, what are the types of things that, uh, you want to know about others? And maybe sometimes it's like something you wish you were asked. I really enjoy, this is one thing that I've discovered in myself when doing these hosting or when hosting these, these uh, series is that I really enjoy humor. I'm actually really um, playful and my family has a fantastic sense of humor. And, you know, so I grew up in with like, with a very morbid sense of humor. <laughs> but, I feel you know, like, like I picked that up. <laughs> yeah, totally, right? And, and, but I feel like I'm not, I don't get enough, I'm not, I don't have enough time to be that person or I haven't had enough time to be that person because it's hard to be um, political and playful at the same time, right? People expect you to be, if you're political, they expect you to be serious all the time. Mm -hmm. And, so I've really enjoyed being able to ask questions that are light in spirit and bring out laughter with people and yeah. share that space with people. It's, it's really enjoyable for me. Mm -hmm. And I, I love seeing the way people who are watching respond. I love watching people's face when, you know, when I throw something in and there, it catches them off guard, but in a fun way. And they're like, ah, you know, and it's, a, and, and then it's just like, it's a good time. And then it, to me, it really makes it feel like it opens up the conversation and it brings a sense of familiarity, fun, and you can go different places then. It that, breaks down a barrier, really. Yeah. What's and that's how I really enjoy being interviewed as well. Like, I love talking with you because I think there's such a, you know, that the it's a conversation, number one. We do joke around and it, it doesn't feel like you know, you ask a question, I answer, and then you're like, great, next question. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, yeah. So for anybody who's, you know, interviewing out there in the world, if you're like starting it up or, you know, whatever, just, I, I can't encourage you enough to break that barrier down with humanity, humor, and, you know, like actual conversation rather than asking questions. Mm -hmm. Get off book. Get off book. <laughs> Let it flow. Yeah. Do you also have a drama background? theater? <laughs> no, I don't. You don't. Okay. I had no. to ask. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'll quote my mother again. She, she always thought that I would be like, yeah, like in the theater or in movies or something like that. I, yeah. I am a very, I was a very dramatic child. There's this one story. I'll tell you this story. Okay. Okay. <laughs> when I was two years old, I was obsessed with Sleeping Beauty. Okay. And you know how Sleeping Beauty, once the prince kisses her, she comes back to life. Okay. So I would throw myself down onto the ground when I was two years old and I would lay there until somebody would come and kiss me and then I would get up. <laughs> so one time when my auntie was visiting, I had like thrown myself down at the bottom of the stairs and I just waited because I would, I'm an Aquarius. We're very patient. And I just laid there waiting in character. And she came down the stairs and thought I was dead because and thought that I had fallen down the stairs and was hysterical. And my mom came running out. She's like, what? And my auntie, because my auntie was like picking me up. She's like, she's dead. And my mom's like, no, she's not. And she gave me a kiss and I just sprung back to life. <laughs> <laughs> she just knew you were playing Sleeping Beauty. There you have it. 
Okay. Well, hey, great skills to have, you know, to stay in character. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm so intrigued and want to learn more about like indigenous uh, traditions and cultures. What's like a, a tradition from, from your family that, you know, you wish that other people could learn about? For me, it is the the thing that I loved the most that I got from my mom was honoring honoring the spirit of things. And so we have a custom where you put down tobacco. If you're going to take from the earth, you put down tobacco to, th to th say thanks, whether it is picking plants, whether it is hunting, whatever it might be, right? Like if you're going to receive something from this earth, you have to give thanks. And the way that I was taught, we were taught was to, by putting tobacco down, you're honoring the spirit of whatever it is that you're receiving. And, and I think that in, for me, that's one that I, you know, I'm a firm believer in it. It really is a part of my everyday with how disrespectful people have been of the earth. This sounds like a tradition that's very, it, it helps you be aware of what you receive from yeah, the earth. Exactly. And, you know, I am, I am definitely not a perfect being. I am filled with imperfections and I am filled with, um, what's the word? Biases, not biases. You're a hypocrite sometimes. Exactly. You know, like, there's no perfect being, but that teaching is still with me all the time. And I, I refer back to it. Right. So it's like, even so simple as, you know, going out to pick medicine as an example, right. It's a nice thing to be able to say that you're connecting, you know, this thing that's going to be healing your body, you're going to give thanks for it. I take it so far as if I'm ever cooking fish or I'm not a big meat eater. So really it's going to be fish, but I'll, as I'm washing the fish before I cook it, I, in my mind or sometimes out loud, I'll just say, thank you. And it's not because I'm like wanting to be cosmic or anything like this. It's literally because I'm grateful for the fact that I'm going to be eating this animal that, or this creature that was alive at one point. And I think it's important to recognize that, to recognize that life feeds life. You know, there's, there's so many cycles and, and, um, evolutions and whatnot. And to pretend they don't exist is, is what is so dangerous for us and for mm -hmm. our existence, because like, let's let us real. where we are now. Yeah. Mother earth is going to kick us off this planet before she dies. Oh yeah. Right? <laughs> so what's the best piece of advice that you've been given as an artist? Ah, um, I was asked a question once. And I was asked if I wanted to be famous or if I wanted to have a career. And that has stuck with me forever. And it's, it, you know, it's a trick question because it's like, you can have a career and be famous or you could be famous or you could have a career, you know, it, like you could, there's all these different ways that you could put it together. And I've asked myself that question my entire career. You know, and, and I'm not going to share the answer because I think it's a, you know, constantly moving thing. But yeah, that to me, that was the biggest um, piece of advice in the form of a question. Wow. Mm -hmm. That is a really interesting one. Mm -hmm. In the spirit of having conversations on this podcast, important stories that need to be told, who are, who are a couple women that you would suggest to come on? 
Number one would be my very dear friend, Elena Vezentaris. Um, she is a brilliant choreographer, originally from Toronto-ish, now in New York. She is the choreographer and the director of my music video, Night Danger. Okay. Uh, we've also just done a photo shoot. She was a creative director for this photo shoot we've just done. She's outstanding. And she's just the most interesting artist. I love everything about this woman. So she would be number one. My second select would be my fantastic agent, Stephanie Purificati. She is, well, number one, she's a lady agent in an industry of very, very, very few lady agents. She works heavily in country music as well and is always battling for gender equality and and so on. And she is a pit bull of a, an agent. Like she is the person that you want to have on your team, but then is also the most hilarious, the funnest. She's like just this outstanding human and I love her more than anything. So Elena, Stephanie, and number three, drum roll. You know what? I'm going to say Shoshona Kish. Shoshona is a beautiful songwriter and performer, and she has also recently started an event called the Indigenous Music Summit. And it is so like the amount of work that she has done for our community, the amount of work that she continues to do for Indigenous women, like she is such a champion. And I think that her voice is one that people need to hear. She is brilliant. She is profound. She is stunning um, in terms of her being. You know, she she's taught me a lot about speaking to people with kindness and with love. I've learned a lot of that from her. And so I think she would be a fantastic addition to your fantastic podcast. It's great. It was so nice talking to you. And thank you for being so kind and loving and open to have uh, all of these discussions. I love the art that you make and I love the space that you make to talk about it. Oh, thank you, Sarah. And thank you for everything you do and having these conversations with us in the in such a place of, of kindness and openness. It's, um, it really does make all the difference. Thank you so much for being here for another episode of the Women in Media podcast. Episode 10. We're still just getting started around here. And if you share the link to this episode on your favorite podcast service or leave me a review, every little bit helps. The idea here is to make sure the stories being told on this podcast have enough reach to inspire others. In case you missed the announcement, there will be a new episode every week this month. And up next, it's Kayla Gray of TSN, who just launched her new show, The Shift. I'm Sarah Burke, and thanks so much for listening. I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators, but we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my gosh, how did I forget about food? So please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Where's us luck? This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.